Welcome back to part two of this brilliant episode, the four stages of psychological safety, defining the path to inclusion and innovation. And joining us today is for part two, the author of that book, Timothy Clark. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Aidan. Happy to be here. I'm going to tee you up here, Tim, with a quote from your book where you mentioned about William James, the father of American psychology, who said, no more fiendish punishment could be devised were such a thing physically possible that one should be turned loose in society and remain absolutely unnoticed by all mem members thereof. If not one turned around when we entered, answered when we spoke, or minded what we did, but if every person we met cut us dead and acted as if we were non-existent things, a kind of rage and impotent despair would before long well up inside us from which the cruelest bodily torture would be a relief. Impactful words from William James. But that's what it describes for people who are ostracized and excluded. And this teases up nicely for stage one of psychological safety. Stage one psychological safety is inclusion safety, which means that you feel a sense of inclusion and acceptance and belonging and connection and appreciation and value from those around you. And it goes to that very deep-seated human need to, to be connected. We long to belong. We are biologically, emotionally, socially, spiritually driven to connect. And this comes out so clearly in the research. Just watch people when they get together in social settings, what's their first concern? If you walk into a group, it could be a meeting, it could be a social gathering of any kind. You just watch people. When they first come in to that social setting, what are they concerned about? They're concerned about being accepted, about being included, about being seen, about being heard, about being valued. This is stage one. This is the foundation. And I would argue that it is the governing and organizing principle of human interaction. If we don't get stage one right, how do we get the other stages right? How, how can we have healthy, vibrant, progressing organizations and teams? You can't. You start to move into patterns of pathology dysfunction and toxicity, right? We, we've been a part of that. Unfortunately, we've all had an opportunity to be a part of, of those social collectives. So what we're saying is, we know this is stage one. We know it's based on the first human need that we want to satisfy. Uh, let's, let's invest in this, and, and then we can move to the other stages. So that's a, a brief description of, of stage one. When I read stage one and I thought about it, I was, I think most people would say, oh yeah, I definitely, definitely stage one. But you go deeper into that and you ask us questions like, how do you treat somebody who can do nothing for you or somebody who you deem is a lower status than you? And this was brought to life for me the other day. So I've moved into these new offices and there's a cleaner and the cleaner appeared rude so he had his headphones on and he was he was down in the kitchen i was leaving late after recording a show 
and I I I waved to him, you know. So I said so hello first, and he had his headphones in, so he didn't. And then I, I and he took out his headphones and he said excuse me, and I said hello again, and he was a, a foreign guy, and he told me nobody had ever said hello to him before, and because I, I the the thing was I, my perception was that he was rude. But he had just been probably tried a few times and nobody had ever said hello to him. And then he told me that his experience in Ireland, and I was ashamed to hear this, he said it was quite poor because he is he's from Kazakhstan and he kind of looks uh, a little bit foreign and people treated him poorly. And I was just devastated to hear that. But this is what you're talking about because you gave an example that you used and almost like a, a field study that you did where you have two cars and depending on which car you drive, people treat you dramatically differently. I'll, I'll share that story. And uh, so um, I had a very old Chevrolet Suburban, which is kind of an SUV, very old and rusty and probably not worth a lot, but I held on to it for years and years and years. I took it in to be serviced to um, a repair shop. It actually was a deal. It was a dealership, and uh, as soon as I got there, I could tell that I was not being treated very well. And as it was as if people were holding their noses and saying, "Oh." Uh, Mr. Clark's here. We, we hope that he leaves as soon as possible so as not to be seen with the other clientele. And, and I realized, oh, it's the car. It's the artifact of the car that is causing this. And, and sure enough, people were they, were, uh, they were pretty rude and hoping I would get on my way very quickly. Uh, this is, you know, this is not the demographic that we want to serve. Very interesting. Very interesting case study because here's what happened next. A few weeks later, I came back in my wife's black sedan. It's a pretty nice car. And from the first touch point, I was treated differently. Mr. Clark, we're so happy that you're here. Uh, what do you need? Would we have Wi-Fi? Would you like something to drink? Would you like to sit down? They were courteous and kind and solicitous from beginning to end. Why? Again, it was the artifact of the car in which I was driving that for them uh, represented, so I was a different, apparently a different uh, demographic, a demographic worthy of serving that way. That's a tragedy because stage one inclusion safety is a human right. It's not something you earn it's something that you are owed by virtue of the fact that you are part of the human family. And it doesn't matter what the bundle of demographics and psychographics are that represent you as a person. It doesn't matter what your intersectionality is. What does that have to do with anything? If humanity is our highest loyalty, then the only grounds to justify exclusion or this kind of behavior or treatment would be the threat of harm. That would be it. But other than that, it doesn't matter if you're from Kazakhstan, it doesn't matter what your demographics are, that, that has no bearing on the way that you should be treated as a member of the human family. So as I say, 
for stage one inclusion safety, it should not be a matter of judgment based on your worthiness. It should be a matter of prejudgment. Prejudgment. That means I don't need to think about it in advance. It's a matter of prejudgment based on your worth, your intrinsic, inherent worth as a human being. That's it. That's stage one. There's a, a thing you talk about, and, and it's, it rang so true to me because we both experienced this. And I'm going to give the example in sport, but then bring it into the workplace. So first, the workplace experience would be, have you ever had a workplace colleague who'd suffered some type of health, mental health or physical health issues, and then visibly got treated differently as a result of that? Or even worse, and, and I, I've heard of this where somebody goes on maternity leave, and they come back and they're treated totally differently, or they're treated differently as they're pregnant as well in the workplace. And the reason I say that is it's exactly what happened to Tim and I and Tim, I'd love you to take it away from here. I played particularly in France, I played away abroad in France when I was a kid when I was only 21. And everything was going great when I was playing and then it got injured. I didn't know that and you, you went through this too. Yeah, yeah, man. I, I, and I went through it here as well in Ireland. And the experience of, of from hero to zero was had such an impact on me because it, it made me realize that it was about the status and the ability to deliver something worth worthwhile with no patience for me to get through this trough that I'm going through in order to get back on the crest again. And that experience was so impactful and really helped me and gave me extreme empathy as a result. And that's often the best way to learn is through experience, although it was extremely unpleasant. But over to you, because you've experienced this yourself. Well, I went through a similar experience when I was playing American football at a, at a large university here in the States. And I was having a good experience and I felt that stage one inclusion safety with my coaches and my teammates. And then I got hurt. I was seriously hurt in a game and I it required surgery. I had to have reconstructive surgery on my ankle. And, and so they put a big cast on me and here I am, I'm on crutches. And I go back to my first team meeting after my surgery. And clearly, I could see that something had changed. Things were different. And what had changed was that my coach treated me as if I were invisible from that day forward for the rest of the season. Why? because I could not contribute to the team in the same way. I couldn't get out there on the field and make the same contribution. So he applied a worthiness test to me, not a worth test. So he took away, he revoked that stage one inclusion safety. And I got to tell you for, I mean, Aiden, when that happened to me, I was 18. And, and, and I'll tell you that stung. That was a stinging experience for an 18 year old. Very, very painful. And, and I learned that, oh, okay, to, to some people, stage one inclusion safety is conditional. It's revocable. That doesn't make sense. Stage one inclusion safety should be based on your humanity, not some worthiness test that you put together. To bring it a, a step further, I, I've experienced this as well, and I'm sure you did as well with some of your former players, your former teammates, 
was where some players privilege they don't know what they have so that's pr- the problem with privilege i suppose is that you don't know what it's like to be the other side like ride riding the pine as as you say in the book being on the bench is it can be debilitating mentally even though you're involved in the team but you don't always get on and i've been there and i found that the players that were the guys who were always picked because the extremely talented players only became more of a team player when they went through some type of crisis of injury or maybe dropped by the team coach etc and then they experience what it's like on the other side and then they change and then they are more inclusive etc so sometimes it's a challenge of privilege but let's bring it back to what you talked about there because you, you talk about this in work as well and i picked a little quote here to bring it to life because you tell us that you worked with another leader who asserted dominance through an arbitrary pattern of giving and revoking inclusion safety like you had experienced as an 18 year old and you were in his good graces one day out the other respected then neglected heard then ignored fawned over and then forgotten coached then coerced healed then hurt and you say let's be clear and this is the point i'd love you to expand upon head games which happens in organizations all the time are a form of abuse in which one human toys with another so you can gaslight somebody and this happens so many of the change makers who listen to this show they get gaslit they get psychological games they get put out to corporate pasture chasing projects that are meaningless just to keep them busy and it's almost like let's frustrate them out of the organization because they're challenging the status quo yeah as i say that is toying with another human being and it is absolutely immoral behavior it, it on any level uh but yet we see it we see people use inclusion as a manipulative tool they give it and then they take it away and we we've seen this so this again is an example of where a leader is not leading uh so let's let's talk about influence okay and maybe maybe this will be helpful for all the listeners i want you to think about influence on a a spectrum and at one end of the spectrum is manipulation and at the other end of the spectrum is coercion so manipulation is based on what principle deceit we're going to use deception we're going to use um head games and tricks to manipulate to get what we want so we have manipulation at one end of the spectrum of influence this is a way that many people learn how to influence other human beings at the other end is coercion coercion is based on the principle of force we're going to muscle people we're going to press them into service we're going to force them to do what we want them to do so at the extremes of the spectrum of influence again we have manipulation and we have coercion may i suggest that neither of those represents leadership where's leadership 
leadership is in the middle of the spectrum. And I would describe that as the area of persuasion. And so if you want to be a great leader, then you become a student of the tools of persuasion. What are they? There's encouragement, there's vision, there's logic, there's data, there's coaching, there's empathy, there's, there's all these things that are in the middle. That's where leadership lies as an applied discipline. Leadership is an applied discipline. So if you go east to coercion or you go west to manipulation, again, you've abdicated leadership. You're not leading anymore. You, you've either picked up your tricks or you've picked up your power tools, but you're not leading anymore. There are far too many people in management positions and leadership positions that lead through those ways of manipulation and coercion. They never have learned how to lead. And they hide behind title and position and authority and status. They hide. They're hiding. They're not leading. And they are protecting the privilege that they have. Little do they know that leadership is not about them. It's not a glittering path to their own rewards. It's not about self-enrichment and aggrandizement. That's what not what leadership is about. Leadership is about contributing indirectly through others and rejoicing in their success. That's what leadership is about. It, and, and so you psychologically and emotionally, you have to go through that transition where you realize that your, your contribution has gone from direct to indirect. And you love that. And you're genuinely happy for, the, for, pe for people when they succeed and you have great affection for them. You can't fake that. So when it comes to psychological safety, so much of this comes back to intent, right? Humans have a natural ability to smell intent. And if, if your intent is not genuine, if it's not clean, if good faith is not there, you don't pass the smell test. Now, you may be able to fake us out for a little while, but not for the long term. We're on to you. And, and so it's that intent that means so much. Intent is so important, by the way, with psychological safety, that if you make mistakes, right? Say, say you make some mistakes, but people know where your heart is. If you are interpersonally clumsy, if you maybe say the wrong thing at the right the, at the wrong time, people will give you grace for that. They will forgive you quickly because they know where your heart is. They know that your intent is genuine. And so that's why I go back to lead, the, the best synonym for leadership in the English language is the word influence. So the next question is, how are you trying to influence those around you? If it's based on persuasion and genuine intent, you're going to go very far. Even if you're not the smartest, most talented person, you're going to be an incredible leader. You will. People will follow you. They'll sign up and they'll want to follow you. 
But if you resort to manipulation or coercion, especially in the 2020s after two years of pandemic, they're going to say, I'm going to bounce, man. Not going to hang around. <laughs> and it's happened. We've seen it happen, man. You know, so many people, you can talk a good game when you're winning all your games. You know, when things were going well and so many leaders got found out, they were talking a great game. But then when things got tough, they really showed their true colors and people left, you know, and uh, as, as, they, as they say, any turkey can fly in a storm. You know, it's easy to talk Jeez. a good game <laughs> when things are going well. But one of the things you alluded to there was essentially learner safety. So, you know, when I make a mistake while I'm learning on my way up, that's okay. And in part one, I mentioned, for example, my son. And unfortunately, some other kids in his class had experienced the wrath of a, an autocrat uh, teacher and an autocratic teacher who really ruled by fear and made the kids afraid to say when they didn't understand something, take more time, etc. And I'd love to give the great example here of Lone Peak High School, which is just magnificent. And But I'm going to tee you up before then. So this chapter, I, I really particularly loved stage two, the learner safety. And I'm going to tee you up here with a quote, and then I'd love you to take us through what you experienced there with that, that those interviews you did about Lone Peak High School. So firstly, the quote goes as follows, learner safety indicates that you feel safe to engage in the discovery process, ask questions, experiment, and even make mistakes. Not if, but when you make them. Without learner safety, you will likely remain passive due to the risk of acting beyond a tacit line of permission. In children, adolescents, and adults, the patterns are all the same. We all bring inhibitions and anxiety to the learning process. You ask us to consider that in the US, a student drops out of high school every 26 seconds. And you ask us this, do you think these students are dropping out because they don't have the mental bandwidth to do the work? And that translates into the workplace later on. If they don't have somebody who can help them with learner safety, who can encourage learner safety, as you experienced with this great, great interviews with the man who was responsible for so much learner safety in Lone Peak High School in Highland, Utah. So Mr. Craig Smith is the is the teacher. And he's a, a recovering electrical engineer. No, I shouldn't say that. But he he worked for uh, as many years in industry. And then he came and he, he did a career change and he became a high school math teacher and he teaches calculus. And I studied his classroom and I interviewed him and I interviewed some of his students and it was astonishing because of the way that he's able to nurture stage two learner safety. What he does is he, he changes the norms of learning. Now, normally, uh, when you make a mistake in learning, then there's some maybe fear associated with that. And so what he did in his classroom is he would disconnect fear from mistakes. Well, how do you do that? The only way you can do that is by rewarding mistakes over and over and over until it becomes normalized. And that's exactly what he did. And so he successfully disconnects fear from mistakes. Now, at first, 
it's difficult and the and the students are they they're still apprehensive and they don't want to jump in and they don't want to make mistakes because they feel that 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 fear but after a while because he rewards the mistakes consistently they start jumping in and soon it becomes this new environment and what he says is he says look everyone mistakes are not the exception they are the expectation. Do you understand? Jump in, lean in, make the mistakes. This is part of the discovery process. This is how we go forward. And the lights go on with the students. It's illuminating and it's transformative in their learning experience. Now, why is this so? Let's just step back. So Aiden, let's let's think about the teacher that you mentioned that 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 rules by fear. If you do that and you're in any kind of teaching position, you don't understand learning. That's what it reflects because learning is both intellectual and emotional. In the learning process, you cannot separate the thinking brain from the feeling brain. They don't come apart. And so just, just, just ask this question of yourself. And, and perhaps you, you've, you've had some experiences this way. If you are consistently punished for your acts of learning vulnerability, when you ask a question, when you say, I don't know, when you give some feedback, when you try something new, if you are repeatedly and consistently punished in those acts of learning vulnerability, what happens to you over time? Just think about this. What happens to you? You stop trying, you lose confidence, you withdraw, you become, because you are, you become an emotionally bruised learner. And when you become an emotionally bruised learner, you also become a cognitively impaired learner. They go together. If you're emotionally bruised, you will not learn at capacity intellectually. You're compromised in your ability to learn. We know that. That's not new. That's a finding. That's a research finding that we've had for some time. And yet we still see teachers and leaders and managers and other people that are teaching that are punishing acts of learning vulnerability. It doesn't make sense. You're shutting people down. Now, on the other hand, think about this. What if your acts of learning vulnerability are repeatedly rewarded? Yeah, you make mistakes, but you're encouraged. You are acknowledged. You, you get support. You get help. You get guidance. Uh, people are helping you. They're encouraging you. But you're making mistakes all over the place. What happens? After a while, you're just... You're comfortable doing that. So you are emotionally empowered. Therefore, you are cognitively enabled as a learner. And it's the same, as you said, Aiden, it's the same with children. It's the same with adolescents. It's the same with adults. It doesn't matter what the cohort is. It doesn't matter what the demographics are. It doesn't matter what the culture is. It doesn't matter what the gender or the age or the ed educational attainment or religious affiliation or sexual orientation. None of that matters. 
this pattern holds true. And so what we're saying is, well, think about this. In organizations, the imperative is learning agility. That's what everybody says. We need learning agility. What does learning agility mean? It means to learn at or above the speed of change. How can you do that? How can you do that as an individual? How can you do that as a, as a team? How can you do that as an organization? The only way you can do that is if you create a culture where acts of learning vulnerability are consistently rewarded. If you go in the opposite direction and you're punishing those, you are increasingly at a competitive disadvantage. That's how it works. So there's the connection between psychological safety and then learning and then ultimately to performance. I just want to emphasize that with a quote that from your book that I picked out because you got ahead of me and you absolutely nailed it. You said the natural rise and fall of competitive advantage is nothing new. What is new is the overall compression of timeframes, which naturally shifts the source of ongoing competitiveness to learning. A competitive cycle is a learning cycle, either learn and retool to maintain competitiveness or face the grave risk of irrelevance. And I thought that really brought home what you just talked about there. But I also thought about something, Tim, and again, it was your book that stimulated this thought for me was, you know, when you run a session, and particularly when it's an innovation session, and the very person who needs to be there doesn't show up, or the leader doesn't show up, and maybe it's the leader who's actually paid for the session, and then thinks they're almost like above it. So when that happens, oftentimes, the team is demoralized, and they're kind of going, Oh, uh, Joe should be here, or whatever, you know, and I thought about that, and I go, well, maybe it, it goes right back to source here. Maybe it goes back to little Joe when he was in school and he's living, he's an autocratic teacher, or maybe in an organization where he had an autocratic boss and there was no learner safety, but they persisted and they had resilience and they made it to the top. But now they're going to protect that position with everything. They're not going to show any vulnerability, particularly in a learning environment. And it's a huge frustration for us with learning, with corporate learning, is when people that need to be there don't come. And one of the things you do, as you know, and you do all the time, is as a facilitator, you create that psychological safety for learning to happen. But oftentimes, that's not explicit to people who don't attend. And people who do attend have a great experience as a result, because learning too has shifted on. We've learned a lot. We've learned about neuroscience, etc. And the world has moved on a lot. Well, speaking of neuroscience, what we've learned is that your brain, neurologically, you process punished vulnerability, so emotional pain, social pain, psychological pain, you process that in a way that's very similar to processing physical pain. And so you can see how devastating it is when those conditions do not prevail on a team or in an organization to nurture that learner safety for stage two. And you can see how directly tied it is to innovation and competitiveness. And so if you have a legacy culture that is authoritarian or that has a tendency to push the fear button, 
you're going to have to unlearn that. You're, you're going to have to re-socialize the organization and it's not going to be easy, but that is the only way that's, that's going to be the source of your sustainable competitive advantage, right? Competitive advantage over time. It's because competitive advantage, I mean, let's just talk strategy for a minute. Strategy, com co competitive advantage is perishable. It's not permanent. All of the sources of competitive advantage that you have in your organization, they are melting. Some are melting fast, some are melting slow. So the only question is, what is the rate of the melt? But there's no such thing as equilibrium. Sometimes it looks stable because the ice is melting slowly over here. But ultimately, all of the sources are melting. And so that redirects our focus back to learning as the ultimate source of competitive advantage, which then takes us back to the cultural conditions that prevail. How can you ignore that, especially in the 2020s? You can't. Um, so this is, this, is a, this is quite an awakening that we're having in many organizations, quite an awakening. Next, we're going to move on to stage three, which is contributor safety. And Tim is going to take us through what that means. And I'll just tee you up again with a quote here, Tim, you say, if learner safety fosters preparation, contributor safety fosters performance. What exactly do we mean by performance? You ask the answer, as you talked about in part one of this episode is execution and innovation. A key concept I'd love you to expand on here is organizations engage in only two processes execution and innovation execution is the creation and delivery of value today while innovation is the creation and delivery of value tomorrow now we did cover that in part one but i'd love to cover that in the context of contributor safety so what that means is that your contribution needs to cut across both execution and innovation because really innovation is embedded in every job description. Now it may not be written formally in, in your job description, but it's there. It's embedded because you can't, right? You can't separate execution from innovation and your job is to do both. And so what that means is stage three contributor safety is all about finding meaning and purpose in the work that you do and then being able to contribute in a meaningful way to that. And that's a very deep human need. And that translates into an appropriate level of autonomy and role clarity and support and guidance. Now, stage three is different, for example, than stage one we, we, we said is a human right, right? Stage one inclusion safety. By the time you get to stage three contributor safety, it's shifted. Contributor safety is something that you have to earn. You earn it based on results. You earn it based on, on performance over time. Autonomy is never free. Organizations function on the basis of accountability, mutual accountability. And so we have a division of labor. We have roles and responsibilities. That's what stage three is all about is, am I given an opportunity to make a meaningful contribution? And will I take that opportunity? Will I capitalize and take advantage of that opportunity? Because I'm being given that. And I also have a deep need 
to find meaning and purpose in, in the work that I do. That's what stage three is all about. It's so important. I was thinking about the where you were so, so, talking about like uh, role clarity, for example. And I was thinking about somebody who comes into an organization, like for those of you who have been there to remember this is you go for the interview, you're grateful to get the job. So very few of us are interviewing the company. <laughs> it's often the other way around. They're interviewing us and we're putting our best foot forward. Then you get into the job. Some parts of that job description were a little bit vague. You weren't that sure of them. And then you get into the job and then you discover actually what they meant. But because of a lack of role clarity or on onboarding, we oftentimes don't have the psychological safety to pipe up and kind of go, I don't really understand what this means. Because the leader or the person who hired you may kind of go, well, what the hell are you doing here? And that part, I thought that mix of the different psychological safety, the different stages was really important here, and particularly where you talk about accountability at this stage. And accountability, uh, the way that we look at accountability is there's a, there's a progression. So the very basic form of accountability is what we call task accountability. You're able to complete a task on time and at standard. If you can do that again and again and again, and you demonstrate a track record of performance over time, then your accountability, you need to move up to what we call project or process accountability. That's where we take tasks and we put them together. A project is simply a group of tasks with a beginning and an end. A process is a sequence of repeating tasks. We do them over and over. So if you master task level accountability, we need to elevate you to process slash project accountability. If you can come to mastery on that, and there's a track record of performance in that on that level, then we'll take you all the way to the top. And the top is outcome level accountability. Outcome means that you're responsible for the outcome. When you get to outcome level accountability, it shifts the terms of our engagement because you, we're not going to talk so much about all the details. You already mastered that. So we will drop down to process level or task level by exception. If there's a problem, if there's a question, if there's an obstacle, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll work on that together. But other than that, we're going to work with you at an outcome level. And we're going to say, Aiden, this is the outcome. This is the result that we would like. Make it happen. And you're going to go make it happen. Now, the interesting thing about this is when we go all the way to outcome level accountability, when we shift to that highest level, this is where the magic happens. This is where people do the best work of their lives. Why? Because when we go to outcome level, we transfer ownership and we transfer the primary responsibility for critical thinking and problem solving. When you transfer that, then people have the autonomy, the independence, the creativity, the leeway, they get to figure it out. And it's interesting because if you ask most people at what level of accountability would you like to be managed? Most people say outcome level, 
please, please, please. And then we ask them, why is that so attractive? And they say, well, because I get to do it myself. I get to figure it out. I have the autonomy and the independence and the creativity and the ownership. That's exactly right. That's what we're trying to get to at stage three contributor safety. Before we move on to challenger safety, which is my favorite, <laughs> and is I, I wanted to just share a key concept that you talk about. And I just want to remind uh, our audience, I, I often talk about the difference between a naysayer and a gainsayer, a gainsayer calling out things that are broken or opportunities with the goal and the intent of making the organization better or making the working environment better. A naysayer is just the person who always slams your ideas and derails things. Because you talk about a key concept when soliciting and engaging the team for innovation, for ideation, for example, you say it's the leader's job to recognize the difference between dissenting and derailing behavior and to manage the boundaries between the two. It's one thing to disagree or to offer an alternative point of view with an attitude to contribute based on a sense of where the team is and whether an alternative is viable. It's quite another thing to dissent in a way that is disruptive to team morale and not helpful to overall progress. That distinction is so, so important and it's so often misunderstood, particularly from the challenger because the challenger is often labeled as a troublemaker or a rebel and the organization will tolerate them for a little while but as we talked about earlier on will often make life difficult for them and play games with them and eventually that person will leave but they're absolutely essential to the organization but going back to this point it's the leader's job to actually referee that and to spot it in the first place it's the leader's job to referee it and to coach the individual. Because sometimes the individual is well-meaning, but they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to dissent. And so this, this is a skill. So we need to teach our people how to engage in constructive dissent so that it's not derailing behavior, but it's constructive dissenting behavior. And that often requires a lot of coaching so that we're not offensive, we're not hurting people, we're not destructive, we're not derailing in the process. Now, there will be times where we have a motivation problem. And this, if there's a motivation problem, then that highlights the distinction between an innovator and an agitator. So an agitator is causing trouble. Well, what's the difference between an innovator and an agitator? It's the intent behind the dissent. That's the difference. So if you have a real agitator that is, is trying to create difficulty, <laughs> then that, that person needs some attention, that person needs some coaching, and you've got to get to the root cause. And, and you're not going to know the root cause at the beginning because agitating behavior is a symptom of something going on inside. You're not going to know. So you've got, you need some one-on-one -on -one, one time with that individual and you need to do root cause analysis. Where is this coming from? Let me give you an example. So I was working with a technology company and this manager had a, uh, uh, was managing a team of software developers and one of the software developers was really struggling, struggling in, in, in group settings, uh, uh, being uh, kind of 
demonstrating this agitating behavior, derailing things, really struggling. Well, the manager uh, took this person aside and tried to understand where this was coming from. Turns out the software developer is um, had, had come from another country and his wife was emigrating as well. And she had just arrived to the United States and she was having a really hard time acclimating and figuring things out. And so they were having a very stressful transition in their lives. And so the manager got to the root cause. So then the manager was able to help with resources and support. And he said that made all the difference in the world. So, so number one, if there's derailing behavior, we need to coach people so they know how to dissent constructively. Number two, if there's agitating behavior, we need to get to the root cause to understand why the person is agitating, what they're upset about, what, what, what is the problem. And normally, there will be an opportunity to solve both of those problems, whether it's derailing behavior or agitating behavior. They're all teaching moments. And, and you know, it goes back to what you talked about is, oftentimes, we're we can be critical and, and people can be critical of a leader in a team. But sometimes those leaders haven't been coached. And sometimes they resist the coaching, etc. But they don't know what to do because they don't, they're not in a learning environment. And I go back to what we talked about earlier on about that person disengaged, their manager thinks they're, they've, they're checked out or they've retired on the job. But it's the environment that was the cause of that. So it's never quite accurate what the, or it's never quite obvious what the cause of a behavior is. So you have to go digging. Yeah, always have to go digging. Your book really helps identify some of those things. So the final stage, and we've gone over time, and thank you for staying with us on this, Tim, is the one that I love be best, which is challenger safety, the place where many of our listeners think they are in organizations, but oftentimes, there's other parts missing before that. And you say the final stage of psychological safety allows you to challenge the status quo without retribution, reprisal, or the risk of damaging your personal standing or reputation. It gives you the confidence to speak truth to power when you think something needs to change and it's time to say it. Armed with challenger safety, individuals overcome the pressure to conform and can enlist themselves in the creative process. This is absolutely essential and speaks to the very spirit of this show. Yeah, challenger safety is the culminating stage. And really, it's the full expression of all the stages coming together. Now think about what it represents, though, to challenge the status quo for many people is though is an act of vulnerability that carries a very high risk. They're reluctant to do it. In fact, they're not going to do it unless they can see evidence that other people have done it and they've been rewarded for it. So we have to just we ju we just have to realize the stakes are high and the margin of error is low for the individual here. They this is a very there's much fear and trepidation that accompanies this behavior to challenge the status quo. But think about how how necessary it is for innovation. 
it's the primary enabling condition that we need in order to innovate because it requires that we disrupt the status quo. So it's not easy. Uh, think about what it requires of the leader. The leader, this may well be the supreme test of a leader. So think about that for all of you listeners. Can you do this? Do you have the capacity, the intellectual, the moral, the social capacity to create and nurture and sustain challenger safety? Because what it means is you're going to let go of your ego defense mechanisms. You're going to, you're going to let go of your pride of authorship. You're going to bring superb emotional intelligence. You're going to bring humility. What if you had a hand in creating the status quo and then the members of your team attack the status quo? Can you handle that without getting defensive, taking it personally, uh, getting temperamental and territorial? Do you see why the social friction has a tendency to rise with the intellectual friction? But it's the leader that can make the difference and say, nope, we're going to keep that social friction down and I'm going to model the way. Let me show you the way here. Now, it's not going to be easy, but we're going to maintain our terms of engagement so that we can have these hard hitting conversations. We're going to create cultural flatness where uh, it, status and hierarchy are not getting in the way where we, we really can debate issues on their merits. That's what we need in order to innovate. So just think about all the things that get in the way. Think about how the hierarchy gets in the way. Think about how your ego gets in the way. Think about how uh, patterns of communication get in the way. Are you able to lead primarily through questions rather than answers? Have you ever tried that? Are you too directive? Are you too didactic? Do you need to just shut up? This is what we're talking about. This is, as I said, for many leaders, this is an incredibly demanding test to be able to nurture ch stage four challenger safety. This is because this is the highest level but you have to look at what's at stake. Let's look at what's at stake for you as a leader. What's at stake for the members of your team. Look at what's at stake for the organization. It's massive. Uh, so this is, this is where we've got to go. And, and for many teams and many organizations, this is quite a challenge, but this is, this is what the 2020s is all about. In my opinion, it reminds me there's a quote I use in my keynotes and my workshops by Tolstoy. Everybody thinks of changing the world, but nobody thinks of changing his, him or herself. And the whole idea is you need to start with yourself here, because when, when you point the finger, there's three pointing back to yourself. And oftentimes leaders like my, my company's not innovative. And you're kind of going, but what are you doing to make it innovative? What? And oftentimes the, this whole starting with yourself, even with innovation, when, when I failed in roles in innovation, I looked back on it and went, what could I have done? And it was loads of things I didn't know. And landing the message, 
making sure I was aligned with the strategy instead of just coming up with loads of great ideas, but they'd nothing to do with the direction of the strategy. It's all those things are have such a dramatic impact on innovation success. And no, no wonder 75% plus of transformation efforts fail. But Tim, there's, there's a lovely way I wanted to finish the show. I have a final quote, a quote that I picked from the book. I have a practice of doing this. The other practice I have, by the way, for those people looking here, they're probably wondering, am I wearing a bit of shamrock or something? Look like it's St. Patrick's Day here. What I'm wearing is my, I moved into a new studio, as I told you, and my son was helping me tidy the pins. I had to create a job for him. So <laughs> I have a box full of pins over there and I asked him to pick out a pin. Now, he didn't pick this pin for this show, but he picked it up and he went, what's this, Dad? And I went, oh, yeah, I forgot I have that. So it's it's the symbol for oxytocin, the symbol of togetherness and, uh, you know, the neurochemical that's derived when you have touch or feeling part of a team, etc. And I thought it was really fitting for today's episode. So that's what that's about. But I'll, I wanted to do two things. One was share my final quote. But before I do that, I wanted to ask you to think about your final message for our audience, perhaps for the innovators and for the leaders listening to the team, to the show. And before I even give the quote is where can people find you? Where can people find out more about the book, etc.? Because you've also kindly given me a copy to share with our audience here, a copy of this brilliant book, The Four Stages of a Psychological Safety. I highly recommend buying it. If you work in HR, L&D, or you're a leader, or you're just in innovation, this is a really important book that's often overlooked. I shared it, by the way, Tim, with uh, friends of the show, Jim, Jim Dieterch, who wrote Choosing Courage. He was here with us in person, actually, last week. And also Ed Hess, who wrote Humility is the New Smart and Hyper Learning. And also, for those people interested in that kind of concept, you got to check out their episodes because they're so complementary to what Tim talked about today. And also, of course, that episode with Amy Edmondson on her great work on psychological safety. So Tim, where can people find you? And where can they find out about keynotes, workshops, coaching, etc? Well, we just invite you to visit us at leaderfactor.com. And uh, all we have all kinds of uh, free resources that that might be helpful to you and your team. So Feel free to check us out and um, and uh, love to love to see you on LinkedIn as well, Timothy R. Clark. But yeah, no, we, we we welcome the visits. Yeah, hope to see you soon. And I have a final quote, and then I'm going to hand it over to you to close with your final call to action for our audience. You say the absence of physical safety can bring injury or death, but the absence of psychological safety can inflict devastating emotional wounds, neutralize performance, paralyze potential and crater an individual's sense of self worth. One of the first things you learn about leadership is that the social and cultural context has a profound influence on the way people behave, and that you as a leader are straight up responsible for that context. The other thing you learn is that fear is the enemy, it freezes initiative, ties up creativity, yields compliance instead of commitment, and represses what would otherwise be an explosion of innovation. If you can banish fear, install true performance based accountability and create a nurturing environment that allows people to be vulnerable, as they learn and grow, they will perform beyond your expectation and theirs. 
I absolutely loved how you articulated that. And that's my choice of quote to close today's show. Over to you, Tim, what's your final call to action? I'll just share a couple of corollary principles that might be helpful. Number one, lead as if you have no power. If you're in any kind of a managerial role, don't ever hide behind title, position, and authority. Lead as if you have no power. And number two, in doing that, hold your opinions lightly. So I would, I would urge you and encourage you to do that. Lead as if you have no power. Hold your opinions lightly so that you remain accessible and open uh, to the feedback and the input of others. Um, those are a couple of, of suggestions that I would leave with you. Author of the four stages of psychological safety, defining the path to inclusion and innovation, Timothy Clark, thank you for joining us. It's a real privilege and thanks for doing what you do. I'm so grateful for Tim for that two-part episode. It was absolutely fantastic. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. I'll see you soon for some more multi-part episodes and fantastic content.